All right, you want to get out your sermon outline. We have a, a lot to cover. I'm a little long today, so you're going to have to listen quick. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. We thank you that it is truth, that it is good, that it is authoritative, that it's practical, that it's profitable, that you mean to guide us. But Lord, our minds are dull. We're dulled by sin, we're dulled by the things of the world, we're dulled by a spiritual immaturity that puts ourselves first. We need your spirit to show us wonderful things in your word and grow us into spiritual maturity. And so we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Jonathan Ide is an MTW missionary in Kiev, Ukraine. And I think because of his context, he brings a very different perspective to this issue of church unity uh, than we might have here in America. He says that his second language is Russian because he went to the Ukraine in 1998, and that was the language to learn at the time, was Russian. However, he says if he was to arrive in the Ukraine today, he would learn Ukrainian because the language landscape has changed. In fact, everything is changing right now in the Ukraine because of the ongoing conflict there. And uh, he says the conflict is producing an us versus them mentality in the Ukraine and how the Ukrainian church has been forced to deal with that on one hand is tragic and on the other hand is beautiful. The divisions that have developed in the Ukraine, the us's versus the them's, that has come to the church's doorsteps, are primarily language, politics, economics, but it's forced its way into the church and now defines the church and how they interact with each other and how these things have become obstacles to loving one another. So right now in the Ukraine, because of the language, there's a divide between the Ukrainian speakers and the Russian speakers. And it isn't just I prefer one language over the other. It's connected to the political divide so that those in the Ukrainian Evangelical Presbyterian Church, which is the sister denomination to the PCA, the language that they choose to hold their service in, the language that they preach in, the language that they sing in, becomes now all of a sudden a political statement that you're either for Ukraine or you're for Russia. And there's no space in between those things. And so some of the churches there are asking, in fact, Jonathan says he called one of the pastors there and asked him, how's the division working in your church? Nobody's ever called me and asked me that question. That church is about 100 miles from the conflict zone. And he said, the pastor there answered, in our church we have three groups of people. A third of the people are sympathetic to Russia and sympathetic to the insurgency and sympathetic that what might come their way if Russia takes over. A third of the people are vehemently against that. They would hate for that to happen. They lean more European and they speak Ukrainian. And a third of the people could care less as long as there's food on the table. So how does a pastor in that context 
lead the people towards unity, particularly the unity that's found in Ephesians 4. What does unity look like in that church? Is their allegiance to the gospel stronger than their understanding that they're different people who are divided by politics? And this is far worse than the ugly politics of our country because we're not shooting at each other yet. But for the Presbyterian Church in the eastern Ukraine, the guy taking communion next to you may be across enemy lines next week. That really changes everything. And he says... This is a place where everybody has to make a choice. You can't stay neutral. You have to pick one side. You're either for this group or that group. And he says, you can't be 20% for it. You're 100% for it. The other side is completely wrong, and your side is completely right. And that's come into the church and created this us versus them mentality. So how does he lead through that. Is this unity in Christ stronger than the division that's outside the church? Well, one way this church in eastern Ukraine is trying to handle the division is by taking Ephesians 4 seriously. And so the people have decided, the church has made a decision, that at least when it comes to church, they will selflessly speak the other's language. So the Ukrainians will speak Russian, and the Russians will speak Ukrainian as a way for one side to show love for the other side. I thought that was awesome. The church in the Ukraine is trying to live this out. Their division is far worse than ours, and they're working hard to demonstrate a unity that is far greater than ours. And they've learned that through struggle, and they've learned that through suffering, and they've learned that there's these two opposite things, these two different truths that they and we are going to have to hold on to at the same time. And these are the uh, two things that are in our passage this morning. So turn with me to Ephesians 4, and we'll see the first one of those different truths uh, right off the bat, verses 1 through 6, and the church needs spiritual unity. The church needs spiritual unity. We're actually going to spend most of our time here this morning. The Apostle Paul has stressed in the first three chapters of Ephesians that God has done an amazing work of salvation and creating unity where there had been people who, according to Ephesians 2, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He said, we're all at odds with God. We were estranged from him because of our sin. And through the finished work of Christ, and by receiving and resting in him alone for salvation, as he is offered in the gospel, as our mediator, God has brought a fresh communion with him, uh, along uh, with his alienated people, with alienated humanity. He made people for himself, for fellowship with himself. We'd lost that fellowship because of our rebellion and sin, and we've been brought back into fellowship with him. So he has brought reconciliation. 
And that's what Paul says in the first three chapters. And unity is one of the results of God's work of redemption, this unity between God and man. So he is our God and we are his people. And we can have fellowship with him. But the unity not only is at the vertical level, but it's also at the horizontal level in our relationships with each other. So Paul has stressed Ephesians 1 through 3 that God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between believing Jew and believing Gentile, brought them into one family, one society, one community, one body, one temple. And Jesus is bringing believing Jews and believing Gentiles, people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, very different people, and he's bringing them together in unity in one new humanity. So not only does God heal our alienation from him and bringing us back into fellowship with himself, but he heals the fracturing of our relationships with each other. And so that's what Paul has covered in the first three chapters. But now, starting in Ephesians 4, verse 1, he's beginning to work out the implications of what this whole grand story of this new people uh, that God has created in Christ. And he's working out the applications that, not surprisingly, the first application is unity. And that's where we start, verses 1 through 6. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We could probably have like 10 sermons just on that text. There's so much there, but we're not. But to be honest, just reading that doesn't create unity. Unity doesn't just happen. It has to be cultivated. It has to be maintained. It has to be a deliberate, intentional endeavor for unity. You know this in your own families. Unity doesn't just happen. It has to be cultivated. Husbands and wives can drift apart. Children can become estranged from parents. Siblings get mad at one another. Unity doesn't just happen. And it doesn't just happen in the church either. There's been a lot of pastoral transition in the PCA lately. Some guys retire. Some guys take another call and leave for another church. And uh, some guys get fired. And that's routine. That happens every year. But what's interesting to watch is how do the churches handle it? Some churches handle it really well. Uh, elders communicate well with the congregation and everybody prays a whole bunch. And other churches don't handle it well. Invariably, there's not a lot of communication. And more importantly, there's not a lot of prayer. And people start choosing sides. So why dramatically different responses to very similar situations. Because one place is marked by spiritual maturity and the other place is marked by spiritual immaturity. So how do we have a unity that's marked by spiritual maturity? Well, Paul gives us some guidelines here. First, he says, live out your calling. Live like Christians. Live like you're part of this new family that God's created. 
I've been telling you that you're uh, united in one family now for three chapters. Live like it. And listen to what he says in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul says you've been concerned about my suffering on your behalf. You're concerned about the fact that I've been imprisoned. Well, I want you to understand that your unity, as far as I'm concerned, is worth suffering for. My suffering is justified in light of you living out this grand truth of the unity that we have in Christ. It does not bother me to suffer for that. It's worth it. So as the prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Paul's saying, live up to who you are. God has given you unity. Act like it. He's brought you into fellowship with himself. He's brought Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in Ephesus uh, into fellowship with one another. Live out the reality of that unity. God has inseparably united you to Jesus Christ through saving faith and thus united you to one another. Now live out that unity. You notice Paul saying that God's already given the unity. It's a unity that comes by being united to Christ. And yet he turns around and says, live out that unity. You maintain that unity. You cultivate that unity. Be diligent to make sure you're living out that reality that God has already given you. It's a great picture of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Paul doesn't see those as contradictions, but rather as two things that fit together. God has sovereignly given you a new family that expresses the unity of the gospel. And then he turns around and says, live out that unity in the family in such a way that it bears witness to that same gospel. Paul's saying, be who you are. Be who God has made you to be in Christ. Live out this unity that God has given in the gospel. Essentially, now Paul didn't know this, but he's asking you to live out the third membership vow that you took when you became a member of the church. And if you're not a member and you're going to become a member, you'll get to hear this membership vow. The third one, some of you may remember, says that I'll resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit to endeavor to live as becomes a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who's a community member of Potomac Hills has made that vow. No exceptions. And the Apostle Paul is telling the Ephesians, I'm begging you, I'm urging you, really want you to do this, live as becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Don't just say you're a Christian, be a Christian. Don't just say you follow Christ. Actually follow Christ. Live in a manner worthy of your calling. He, he's trying to enforce this. That I'm in prison for this. This is so important. Which means that the single biggest barrier to our evangelistic witness to friends and neighbors here in Loudoun County not talking about the Western world or the United States or even the Commonwealth of Virginia. Friends and neighbors here, Northern Virginia, Loudoun County, our biggest barrier to reaching them for the gospel is our own lives. You see, when a hypocrite doesn't want to stop being a hypocrite and wants to justify himself, what does he say? 
Well, you guys talk a great game over there at Potomac Hills, uh, but I know how you live. Y'all are a bunch of hypocrites, and I'm happy to go on being a hypocrite myself. And the danger is that our words are overridden by our lives. The power of the truth we proclaim day by day, Sunday school from the pulpit, community groups, one-on-one -on -one conversations, all those things are debunked if our lives don't, if we in our life doesn't, uh, don't walk, as Paul says, worthy of our calling. It is the primary issue of the Christian life. If you claim to follow Christ, if you profess Christ, live like it. A nominal Christianity, uh, in name only Christianity, will not prepare you to face the uh, encroaching pagan culture, let alone the powers and principalities of the world. It has to be a Christianity professed with the mouth, believed in the heart, and lived out in daily life. That's what Paul is saying. And he's trying to make this really strong, crystal clear. But he's also focusing on how we live with one another. He's not just saying you do this as an individual. The unity of church is an article of faith, and yet the history of the church, not to mention the painful experience of many of you, teaches us that unity is fragile. It's easily shattered. Most of you have friends who once upon a time attended church faithfully, but now refuse to return. And when asked, they'll give their reason in some tale of personal hurt or unresolved conflict, some slight or wound that has never healed, and it's led them to walk away from the church. And yet Paul says we're supposed to be one. We ought to be one. But the truth is, sometimes we hold grudges, don't we? Sometimes we speak harshly. Sometimes we fight. Sometimes we divide. How then shall we live together? Well, answering that question is the rest of this passage. All this burden of the 16 verses is to answer the question of how do we live together. And Paul starts by giving us five building blocks, five core virtues of Christian unity. You see them in verse 2. Humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. The building blocks of unity. Humility means we're to think of others better than ourselves. Gentleness means to restrain and sometimes even deploy our strength for the nurture and welfare of others, particularly the weak. Patience means we're to wait quietly on God's timing, putting God's agenda ahead of our own. Forbearance basically means to cut uh, other people the same slack we hope they'll cut us. And love is the sum of all the others combined. It's a compelling picture of what community should be like. And who wouldn't want to belong to a community marked by humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love? But if you think about it, it's a profoundly challenging list. How are we going to do that? I mean, just start with humility. That's hard enough, let alone with the gentleness and the patience and the forbearance and the love. I mean, we want to do like a three out of five. It's hard stuff. We don't find it easy. So how do we obey that? We find some help in verse 3. We're told to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's a balance there. Unity is our call, our obligation, our responsibility. And on the other hand, it's sourced in and enabled by the Holy Spirit. It's his work to make us one new community. 
So we hear Paul's command to exercise these virtues of humility and gentleness, and yet at the same time, the Holy Spirit is working in us to destroy sin and dissolve prejudice and eradicate our intolerance for one another. So how do you live out Christian unity when sometimes living together is really hard work? How do you become more humble and more gentle and more patient? And Paul is telling us the answer to that question is profoundly theological. Look at verses 4 through 6. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's a theme there. And basically, it's there should be a God-centered life that finds the glory of God so valuable that self-promotion begins to shrivel and we begin to learn humility. And a God-centered life rests more and more in the power of God's grace and is more and more set free from the need to assert our own power. And we learn gentleness. And a God-centered life is amazed at the perfect timing of God's providence, ordering all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So the need to be in control begins to die, and we learn patience. And a God-centered life drinks in the wonder of forgiveness, and the need to be right crumbles, and we learn forbearance. And a God-centered life is captured by the love of God that's demonstrated for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we see his love for us, then our self-love starts to look ugly and we begin to love other people the way Christ loved us. And these virtues of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love, they work best in a heart that's absorbed with knowing God. One Spirit, one Lord, one Father of us all. To the degree that we know him, his being, his glory, his persons, to that same degree that we'll love and serve one another in unity. And yet we're dramatically different people. And that's the second truth that comes right alongside spiritual unity, is that the church needs spiritual diversity. Look at verse 7. The church needs spiritual diversity. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. See, it's not enough that we're called to practice humility and gentleness and so on. Christ supplies the resources. Verse 7 says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And Paul wants us to understand the unity is not this sort of sterile sameness or drab uniformity. Everybody has a part to play in the unique way that God has made us. We've all been given gifts to serve the whole body. And what are those gifts? Look at verse 11. I'm going to sort of skip over those middle parts 
just because of time. But verse 11 says he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Apostles and prophets, of course, foundational to the church, given by Christ to provide the word of God so the scripture is complete. We no longer need their ministry. They are foundational. You don't lay the foundation over and over again. That work is done. Evangelists. They're only mentioned four times in the New Testament. We don't get, uh, we don't know a lot about them, but it seems that an evangelist is someone sent to a particular church with authority to bring stability to a needy situation. Think about Timothy. Being called to do the work of evangelists was sent to this church, Ephesus, to build up the ministry of this church. And then there's the shepherd and teacher, really two titles for one office. Probably should be hyphenated as pastor-teacher or shepherd-teacher. It's talking about the minister in a local congregation, the elder whose work is to labor in the preaching and teaching of the word. But the key thing to notice about all these gifts, these four gifts given by the exalted Christ to the church for our unity, is they're all based on the ministry of the word. They're all word ministries. They're all focused on the proclamation of the gospel. Christ is aiming at our unity, and at the heart of his strategy for our unity is deploying men of God equipped to preach the word of God to the people of God. That's what Jesus is doing, raising up servants of the gospel to equip the saints for works of ministry by preaching and teaching the word of God. One reason we emphasize preaching and teaching, and why you should be present to hear both, and why we emphasize Sunday school, and why we emphasize community groups, where the preaching and teaching of the word is heard and applied. And verse 12 is critically important because it tells us how does that work in the church? How does the ministry of, word, of the word fulfill the goal that Jesus has to bring unity into the church through the preaching and teaching of God's word. Verse 12 says that God gave these word ministry gifts to equip the saints for works of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Simon Austin, who's one writer on this passage, identifies a common problem in our church. He says some of our churches are buses, and some of our churches are orchestras. So in the church as a bus analogy, the congregations are passengers, and the minister is the bus driver. The passengers may occasionally help to clean and maintain the bus, and they always want to sit in the same seat. And they appreciate good driving, of course. Some never talk to the new passengers, and others are really hoping that certain passengers get off at the next stop. That's a common way to experience church. But it's not the biblical picture. No, I think a much better picture is the church as orchestra. Amen? All right. The, uh, the conductor helps the whole orchestra play in tune. Each member performs their role. He helps them to understand the composer's musical score correctly. The score, of course, in our case, is the word of God, and the conductor is the preacher, and the congregation is the orchestra responding to the musical score together. Each part engaged in ministry, 
as the conductor, the pastor teacher, teaches Christ's instructions in Holy Scripture so the whole orchestra makes the sound that the heavenly composer intended. It is a much better analogy. So who does the ministry? It's not the one with the title minister. My job is to equip you to do the ministry. It is you, it is the saints who do the ministry. So how does the ministry of the word help us live in unity? By equipping and encouraging and moving us to service. That's how we respond to the word of God. Not just be mere consumers. You know, perhaps you think your taste is more refined and you know what kind of preaching you like. It's actually not a godly response to the ministry of the word, to be a mere consumer with good taste in preaching. The response Paul is calling for is one of service. Who are you serving? You don't need a title. You don't need an official ministry or program. Just who are you serving? Who are you praying for? When was the last time you looked for a new face in the crowd Sunday morning? There's almost always one here. Will you welcome them? Will you open your home to them? You have homes. Do you practice hospitality? How are you serving? That's the call of Jesus Christ to you. And as we begin to serve one another, to demonstrate our spiritual diversity by using our different gifts in different ways, in different places, in different homes, at different times, with different people, then the great fruit of spiritual diversity is spiritual unity. So what is all that going to take? Because so far, most people agree with those things. We have spiritual unity, we have spiritual diversity, sounds good. But to hold those two different things together requires spiritual maturity. And that's the third point. The church needs spiritual maturity, starting at verse 13. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather. Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so it builds itself up in love. So what's the purpose of all this ministry? All of the events. You know, Dave went through the announcements earlier. He listed all these things, all these programs, all the community groups, all the ministry going on at Potomac Hills. What's the purpose of it? The Apostle Paul says it's to prepare God's people for works of ministry so the body of Christ may be built up until we reach what? Until we become mature. All of those prepositional phrases and modifiers and clauses, all about becoming spiritually mature. So if everything that happens in the church is about becoming spiritually mature, then that means we're immature. Or that wouldn't be the job of the church. And Paul doesn't just put it in a positive way. He puts it in a negative way in verse 14. 
He says so that we may no longer be children. The NIV has infants. Paul is saying that we are spiritual infants. And the reason we need to be part of the church is because otherwise we will stay infants. That's a pretty radical statement. Paul is saying we will no longer be infants. We need the ministry of the church. We need to be ministering to each other. <coughs> we need prophets and apostles and pastor teachers so that everybody's doing the ministry. And all this is going on so we may no longer be children. That's Paul talking. He's an apostle. And what Paul's saying is that even he, as an apostle, is spiritually immature. Even he falls short of being mature. Even he falls short of being like Christ. And if that means everyone, even the best of Christians, is immature, then most of us are really immature. If the Apostle Paul is saying, we infants, what about the rest of us? I mean, if Paul's a toddler, we just got home from the hospital. We're about three days old. You see what he's saying? This is amazing contrast. You have the life of God in you. He has made you into a spiritual infant. At the beginning of 1 Peter 1, it says you've been born again, or rather at the end of 1 Peter 1. And at the beginning of 1 Peter 2, it says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. So this enormous thing that comes into our lives this divine life through our union with Christ doesn't create a spiritual adult. It creates a spiritual infant. So what does it mean to be a spiritual infant? Infants are alive. That's good. That's important. They're as, as alive as they'll ever be. They grow. They grow faster than, and better than at any other point in life. So that's good. When you become a Christian, you get this new life, but you're an infant. That's very, very good, but to stay an infant is very, very bad. Paul doesn't want you to stay an infant. So what does it mean to be a spiritual infant? We're going to close by looking at this. Actually, we're not going to close that quickly, so don't get too ready. <clears throat> we're going to look at three marks of what does it mean to be a spiritual infant so that we may no longer be children. And the first thing he describes is that we're tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, <coughs> excuse me, in deceitful schemes. And that means spiritual infants are not discerning. Not discerning. I mean, real infants don't say, here's good food, here's bad food, here's poison. Infants aren't discerning. It doesn't matter. Just give it to me. Now, don't give poison. You know, just keep it away from them. They have no discernment. And Paul says spiritual infants are like that. You can't tell good teaching from bad teaching from poisonous teaching. Therefore, unless you know your way around the Bible, unless you're theologically perceptive, you're a spiritual infant. Another mark, infants are incredibly self-centered. So I, probably why Paul says we need all that humility, gentleness, patience stuff. 
Because infants are self-centered. They want what they want when they want it. Now, doesn't matter. Of course, they get a little bit older and you start teaching them to share your toys and don't grab somebody else's food. You have to train them that there are other people in the world and their desires aren't the only desires that exist. And so we know physical infants are very self-centered and spiritual infants are too. Spiritual infants always thinking about themselves, always getting their feelings hurt, always feeling slighted, always conscious, how are people looking at me or thinking about me or treating me? Am I being treated rightly or not? It's not fair. I'm not being treated fairly. You're absorbed with yourself. You're thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about other people. Can't take criticism. Can't admit when you're wrong. Concerned about image, spiritual infant. And third, spiritual infants are not steady. They're back and forth. It says tossed to and fro and carried about. One of the reasons I'm kind of up on infants right now is Joanna and I have had a refresher course uh, in infants. We have eight grandchildren who we all got to see all eight together this weekend, uh, four of whom stayed at our house uh, this weekend, including one infant. And uh, one of the things I noticed about infants is uh, they have a really short attention span. You know, you can get them to pay attention if you have an object with like lights or music or there's some sort of activity, you know. And for 10 seconds, that child's, ooh. And then suddenly it's like, okay, give me something else. And they laugh, and then they cry, and then they're bored. And they can't keep their attention on any one thing. Of course, they're infants, so we're okay with that. But what does that mean spiritually? You come to worship service and you get really convicted, I'm going to work on that, I'm going to change that, but you don't follow through. You're a spiritual infant. Just do your duty to God. Whether or not things are going well in your life, whether or not you feel good, you do it because you're steady, because you're enduring, because you're patient. If you can't do that, if you don't know anything about a long obedience in the same direction, if you constantly need God to intervene and come up with great new answers to your prayers, you're a spiritual infant. In reality, every day we should be grateful for what God has done for us, whether he does anything else for us or not. We need to stop looking for the spectacular. We shouldn't be people who are telling God, what have you done for me lately? If you do, you're a spiritual infant. Now, to put all that positively, if you're a person of spiritual maturity, you're knowledgeable in the scripture, you're theologically wise and discerning, you're not self-centered, you're not always thinking about yourself, you're serving others, quick to admit when you're wrong, not self-conscious, not always getting your feelings hurt. If you're mature, you're a person of steadiness, not always up and down, blown to and fro. Make a decision, you follow through. You know how to handle suffering. You know how to continue to be faithful and enduring and obedient even when things aren't going well. And even Paul says he doesn't have all that. He's not as mature as he ought to be. And if Paul's saying we're all infants, then where's the rest of us? Be very leery about saying I'm the spiritually mature person. As soon as you say that, you're probably wrong. So what do we do with all this? Well, the first thing I want you to do is don't be shocked at the immaturity of other believers. 
I know plenty of Christians come to church and they're shocked by how immature people are. Spiritually speaking, every church is full of infants. And when Paul says that he's an infant, basically we're all infants. So don't be surprised when there's somebody around you says something or acts some way that's immature. First of all, be grateful because we're not saved by being mature. Amen. We're not saved by having it all together. We're saved by grace. So when the divine life comes to people and turns them into an infant who have a long way to go, we should be grateful for that. Recognizing there's a big difference between an infant and a 30-year-old. It's supposed to be. The difference between an immature Christian and someone who's mature in Christ is just as big as the one-day-old and the 30-year-old. So don't be surprised by immature behavior. Don't get all bent out of shape for it. Remember, we're not saved by being mature. We're saved by grace. On the other hand, don't put up with immaturity in yourself. Be unsurprised when you see it in others, but don't give into it yourself. We all start as infants, but the whole point is not to stay there. So if you have things in your life that haven't changed, you haven't grown, you haven't dealt with it, you have bad attitudes, bad habits, you have flaws, and you say, well, I know it shouldn't be that way, but that's just the way I am. Baloney. I don't buy that. Don't you know what's in you? It's the Spirit of God. It's the life of God. It's the power of God. Whatever you think is wrong with you is no match for that. So don't give in to it. Don't just put up with it, because you have to grow. Somebody once said, and I couldn't find out who said this, but somebody said, being a Christian is like riding a bicycle. You better move forward or you're going to fall off. If you're not moving, you're going to fall and you're going to get hurt. And in spite of having the Spirit of God, we're characterized by spiritual immaturity, and we need to move past that. And Paul says, you can't move past that. You can't move past spiritual immaturity by yourself, by working on yourself as an individual. We have to remember this whole thing's written to the church. It's written to the people, not to an individual. He says it's through deep involvement in the church community, through the increasing the unity and the closeness of the relationships with people inside that church community, that you grow into maturity. So how do you grow into maturity? By growing in unity. The more unified you are, the closer and deeper your relationships get, the more you grow in maturity. I think I, I tried to save the most interesting point for last. And that's, Paul does this very strange thing in verse 13. Because it doesn't say, till we become mature. It says, till we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. We become the mature man. It's singular. And that's strange. Paul's making a very specific point. Because if you're immature, you're infants, that's plural. But if you're mature, you're in the one body that's singular. In other words, the more we become one in Christ, the more we become like Christ, the more we attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, the more we become the one church, spiritually mature, 
the one body of Christ, the mature man, singular. The whole point of Ephesians 4 is we are moving from being plural infants who are all scattered and separated to becoming one mature body of Christ, singular, together, one church. He says, you can't do this as your own. Paul's not looking for mature individuals. He's looking for the mature church, the mature community. And he says, that's real unity. Think about that. You need to pray. Thank you for your patience. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of attaining the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Thank you that the gospel makes enemies friends, takes outsiders and brings them in, takes sinners and makes saints, takes aliens and strangers, and adopts them into your family. And thank you that we've been given a small taste of that reality. Teach us how to live that out, how to walk worthy of the calling that we've received, how to practice humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love. We ask by faith you would grow us up into maturity, even as we believe your word and that you would receive all the glory for it. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.